Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swear that I should not go over Jordan and that I should not go in unto that good land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not go over Jordan. But ye shall go over and possess that good land. Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. Make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, ye shall have remained long in the land and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image or the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And there ye shall serve gods, the works of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. When thou art in tribulation, all the, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word tonight. I pray that you'd use it in our hearts and minds. Pray that you, Lord, would give me unction and power as I preach. Lord, not that men might behold me, but that they might see in the truth of the Word of God a clear image of Christ, Lord, and that they might grow in Him and that they might desire Him more. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what has been done and will be done. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Three separate times in our text, there is a phrase that has appeared. We began to notice it last week in the book of Deuteronomy. It is the word and the phrase, take heed. You'll find several variations of it throughout the book of Deuteronomy. But on ten separate occasions, you'll find this phrase is employed. When we think of someone taking heed, it sort of invokes in our minds certain ideas and certain truths. If I was to tell you, if you're walking down the street and I would say, take heed, the very next thing you'd ask is, well, take heed about what? If I was to give you counsel in your life and I was to tell you you need to take heed about this or take heed about that, uh, undoubtedly you would immediately know what I'm driving at. There's basically three things that this phrase deals with. To take heed means to give attendance to a matter. If I'm telling you to take heed that you do this or that you do that, what I'm saying is don't neglect it. Make sure you take the time to do this or to do that. Right now we're in tax season, amen, or at least I am. I don't know if you are. You may be putting it off, amen. Uh, but uh, we're in tax season. And it might not be an unreasonable thing to say to a person, take heed that you pay your taxes or else it's going to come throw you in jail. Amen. And that's no joke. If you think it is, you just ask them. Take heed to give attendance to a matter. But then to take heed means to give reverence to a matter. So not just, not just to do it, but to be respectful of whatever the matter is. For instance, if we're talking about an action, we might say, uh, it's to give attendance, but sometimes we might be warning someone of an event. You're driving down the road. You've probably had this happen. You've been driving down the road and seen someone just flash their bright lights at you. What they're saying, uh, well, a couple things. They might be saying something ugly, but normally what they're saying is, 
Take heed because there's something up ahead. And very often you'll come around the corner, you'll find traffic stopped because of an accident. Maybe you'll find an animal in the road. Uh, Who knows what you might find. But very often it is a way of giving warning. And what they're saying is take heed on the path that you're on. Don't be flippant. Don't be careless. Don't be without caution. Be cautious in how you are proceeding because we are in a dangerous situation. So to take heed means to give attendance, to do something. It means to give reverence to a matter. Don't treat it flippantly. Don't treat it lightly. But then thirdly, it means to give diligence to a matter. So oftentimes when you're telling someone or teaching someone how to do something, you might tell them as you're teaching them, now be careful when you do this or when you do that. And what you're saying is not just do it and not just be cautious in general, But you're saying use a steady, careful, committed, focused hand in whatever this activity is that you're carrying out. Don't just do it haphazardly. Give it all that you've got as you carry out this matter. This word, this phrase, take heed, it draws into our into a state of sobriety our attitude and our perspective. It tells us that there are some serious matters in life and we better take them seriously. When you study through the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find that it is a book of remembrance. Moses is retelling the law and and the history of the children of Israel. And so it's appropriate that there would, with this retelling, be some cautionary moments when he would say, hey, you better pay attention to this because this is some important information. Last week we preached on taking heed in the matter of secular relationships. We all have to have relationships with a world that does not know the Lord. But as we do, we need to be cautious and mindful that we can't have the same relationship with the world that an unsaved person has with the world. You say, why is that, preacher? Because we're not part of that world. We're in that world, but we're not of that world. Here in our text tonight, on four separate occasions, we find this phrase. What is Moses trying to draw our attention to? In chapter 4, Moses reminds Israel of the day that their relationship with God as a nation had begun in earnest. Remember that when Israel goes down into the land of Egypt, they're a family. And then from being a family, they basically become a slave population. And now they've been delivered. They've been brought by the blood of the Passover lamb out of Egypt. They've been brought through the Red Sea on dry ground. And now they are assembled at Kadesh Barnea. Uh, Now they are assembled at Mount Sinai afterwards and they receive the law. And it's the first time that they're really dealt with by God as a nation, as a people that belongs unto Himself. In verses 1 and 2, he hearkens their memory back to that day when God brought them to the mount and, and thundered with a voice and, and, and disclosed, revealed, dispensed His law unto them. And as he's telling them that story, he wants to remind them of some important truths that they should never forget. Notice these usages of this word, take heed. It says in verse number 9, for instance, take heed to thyself. And keep thy soul diligently. Now, what's he warning them to take heed of? Lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen. And lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. The next time we see it is in verse 15. Moses says, take heed therefore, good heed unto yourselves. 
For ye saw no manner of similitude. A similitude is an image or a representation. If you were to look on a piece of currency or or a coin, you would see a similitude of a president's face, a picture, an image of it. He says, take therefore good heed unto yourselves. Ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. In other words, he's saying don't forget that on that day, God could have revealed Himself visibly to you, but He chose not to. He spoke to you with a voice, not with a vision. Don't ever forget that that was the case. Verse 23, we have a third instance. He says, take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you. I think we could summarize these portions of truth in this way. In verse number 9, He tells them that they are to take heed of what they had seen that day. He says, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen. Verse number 15, he says, you better remember, take heed, don't ever forget that you saw no manner of similitude. In other words, verse 9, he says, don't forget the things you have seen. Verse number 15, he says, don't forget the things you've not seen. Down in verse number 23, he says, don't ever forget the covenant that you made with the Lord. So I think we could say it this way. Verse 9 says, they were to remember what they had seen that day. Verse number 15 tells them they are to remember what they had not seen that day. Verse 23 is to remind them of what they had sealed that day when they as a nation entered into a relationship with God. You know, in your Christian life and in mine, we have short memories. We forget a lot of times what the Lord's done in our life. It is amazing how quickly your memory will betray you. And I would say the very things that humanity was prone to forget then are the very things that we are prone to forget today. If we were to give a title to this message, we could probably call it this, Take Heed Concerning the Matter of Steadfastly Remembering. There are some things we have to galvanize on our mind, because if we're not careful, we'll sure enough forget them. Very often when I meet people, I'll tell them, I'll say, now I'm only, you're going to have to tell me your name a half dozen times before I'm going to remember it. Don't be offended, it ain't you, it's me, I'm getting old, amen? Only the old people laughed at that. All the young people went through and said, how old's preacher again if he's old? (laughs) Sometimes people look at me crazy. I'll I'll meet somebody. I'll go up and I'll look at them and I'll say, "Uh, my name's Toby. What's your name? They'll say, my name's Jeff. And I'll say, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Your name is Jeff. Jeff is your name. And they'll look at me like I've lost my mind. And I'll tell them, I'll say, it's the only way I'm going to remember your name. (laughs) I just, I'm a forgetful creature. That's just the nature of it. And, uh, very often, I, I struggle to remember things, and, and undoubtedly, you experience that too. You know what I'm doing when I'm repeating? I'm trying to galvanize it on my memory. I'm trying to make sure I don't forget it. Hey, there are a lot of things we might forget in our life, but there's some things we ought to go out of our way to make sure we remember. There's a reason God instructed His people in the Old Testament to rear up altars, to build memorials, to set stones, to set boundaries, to put things in their life. Because he knows the frailty of man and he knows the fallibility of the memory. If we're not careful, we'll just forget about some of the things that God has done. Let's consider these little injunctions that are given here and what they mean in our lives. The first one we find is in verse 9. And he tells the children of Israel, remember what you've seen on that day that you met with the Lord. He says, only take heed to thyself. And keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. 
Now somebody's going to say, when I preach it, the things that they saw are not the things that I've seen in my life. Or a better way we might say it is, I've never seen the things that they saw in their experience, but I'm not so sure that's true. We may have not seen the exact events, but the overall ideals that they had observed that are pointed to in Scripture, we have indeed learned in our lives. The first one that's mentioned is back in verse number 3. You remember that Moses says in verse 3, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you, this day. If you go back in Israel's history to the book of Numbers, you can read the tragic story of what happened in, uh, regarding Baal Peor, the false worship of Baal that transpired there. It goes back to Balaam. Balaam, uh, the prophet that uh, refused to curse the people of God, he instead devised a way where that he could betray Israel and he convinced uh, the king of Moab to go and infiltrate their society and their culture with false pagan worship. And the children of Israel embraced this. They began to follow after Baal at Baal Peor. And God sends a scourge amongst the people. You remember Aaron goes through trying to stop the scourge. He has the incense with the, the censer with the incense in it that is burning. Moses says, don't ever forget the truth that you learned on that day. Don't forget what you saw that day, we could say it this way, don't ever forget the principles that you have learned regarding the Lord. There are two things that are mentioned here. One is this, that God demands holiness. It says in verse number 3, that those that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. He's reminding them that God does not brook with disobedience. God does not tolerate unrighteousness. Listen, we sometimes, as we get familiar and intimate with God in our walk with Him, sometimes we forget just how holy of a God He really is. Can I tell you that God's primary attribute is not love, it is not mercy, it is not grace. It is holiness. Above and beyond everything that He is, He is a holy God. And he wanted to remind them that God demands holiness. But then verse 4, he says this, but ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you this day. So what they learned that day, what principles had been ingrained and engraved upon their mind? Well, the first is God demands holiness. He is a holy God and He does not tolerate unrighteousness. But the second was this, that God honors obedience. That if we're willing to live a life of obedience to Him, God takes that into account and recognizes that truth. I was talking with someone the other day and we were talking about how God interacts with humanity. And uh, can I remind you, God is no respecter of persons. Amen? God don't care what's in your bank account. God don't care uh, what, uh, what kind of blood flowing through your veins. God doesn't care what kind of legacy uh, that you may boast and tout. God is no respecter of persons, but He is a respecter of processes. Yeah, that don't mean that God don't care about nothing. There are things He values. You know what He values in the life of His people? Obedience. You want your life to be blessed by God? Live a life of obedience to Him. So He says, remember what you saw when you saw this transpire at Belpur. Remember the principles that you have learned. Verse number 10, He points to another thing. He says, especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb. When the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. Notice verse 11, he says, And ye came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire under the midst of heaven with darkness, clouds, and thick 
darkness. He wants them to remember not only the principles they had learned, He wants to remember them to remember the peril that they had observed. Uh, much is made about the fact that God put a boundary around Sinai on that day. And He uh, instructed the children of Israel to not come any further than that boundary. And He said, if so much as an animal breaks through and touches this mountain, you thrust that animal through with a dog. There wasn't special passes. There wasn't special exemptions. If you touch the mountain, you die. The mountain was the place where God had rested Himself at that moment in time and in history. He had literally set His throne down on Sinai that He might commune with Moses, that He might dispense His law. And can I remind you what happens when God is standing on ground? You remember what Moses had learned 40 years earlier when he met the Lord in a burning bush and God said, take your shoes off, Moses. The place where I'll now stand us is holy ground. Hey, if God in a bush could uh, could sanctify just a little ground around it, imagine what happened when the throne of God sat down on Sinai. It sanctified that whole mountain. And what he was saying is, if you try to come and press through and lay finger upon me, and you being unrighteous, it'll kill you. Again, I remind you, hey, listen, we are not God. God is not us. We are not like Him except in as much as He lives in us. In our flesh dwelleth no good thing. And for a man to try to presume to, to burst through upon God, to take the place of God in his own heart, in his own mind, or in the mind of others, is the greatest form of sacrilege and peril as well. What they had learned is God ain't nobody to mess with. He's somebody to run to. Somebody say amen to that. But sure enough, ain't nobody to mess with. If you're gonna, if you're gonna approach God, you gotta do it on His terms. They had learned about the severity of God, that God was a severe God. So He wants them to remember the principles they had learned. Remember the peril that you have observed. But then look at verse number 12. He says, and. So He said, I've been talking about this, but here's something else that you saw that day. He said, and the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude. Only ye heard a voice. And he declared unto you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and He wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that ye might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. We could summarize what Moses is saying here in this way. Don't forget that day that you came and saw uh, the very uh, the very throne, the very presence of God uh, sit down upon Sinai, and the mountain smoked, and the fire burned, and the thunder uh, the thunder uh, sounded, and the darkness uh, pressed in and crept in, and it was a terrifying place. It was an awe-inspiring place. When you were there, if you so much as broke through and touched the mountain, it was a death sentence upon a man. And when God met with you that day, He met with you that He might give you His law and His Word. Moses is trying to remind them, because remember what this chapter is really all about is the Word of God. It's what he begins talking about. He says, don't forget the statutes that have been given. Don't forget that I'm here to give you these statutes. Don't forget what these statutes will do in your life. He's giving an emphasis to the Word of God. He wants them to remember the precepts that they had received. So, preacher, what does I have to do with my life sitting here in a, in a Baptist church in 2022. Well, there's some things we need to be reminded because if we're not careful, we will allow our, our complacency, our apathy, our coldness, and the environment of cultural Christianity that we are surrounded in to make us forget what a holy God that we serve. That He is a serious God, that His Word is rich and precious and powerful, and that the punishment of disobeying it is severe 
in our lives. Notice two things here. First, he reminds them of the medium that God employed. He says, only ye heard a voice. In other words, what matters is not what we see in the sense of, of our observation, but the word that's been given to us. It is not experience in itself that informs the child of God. It is the word of God that informs our life. And he says, don't forget on that day, God could have showed you a vision, but instead he spoke with a voice. He could have made you wonder, but instead he gave you a word. He wants to remind them how precious and important the word of God is. Hey, listen, I, I, I love worship. I love seeing God real and meaningful in my life. I enjoy going to church and enjoying going to church. Uh, but at the end of the day, the thing that matters above and beyond everything else is this book. Our love of it, its entrance into our lives and our obedience to it. So he says, don't forget on that day, God could have showed you a picture movie, but instead he spoke to you a word. And then he reminds them of the message that God had imparted. He said, God gave you specific commandments, even ten commandments, he says in verse 13, ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments. Why did he do that? That you might do them in the land whether you go over to possess it. He said, don't forget that this is not just some abstract, theoretical, religious tome. This is the bread of life that we're to feast off of and live off of day by day. Me and my wife were watching. We like to watch stuff about cults. Amen. Really, we're trying to figure you people out. To be honest, we're trying to. We ain't sure what we've got ourselves into, but uh, we like to. We like to watch things about cults. And uh, we were watching a thing about the FLDS, the Fundamental Latter Day Saints, and uh, out there in, in Utah. And um, you say, what's the difference between them and the regular Latter Day Saints? Nothing, but they'll admit what they're doing. That's the only difference between them. And uh, hey, man, Stephen. And uh, but we were watching this, and this guy, he. <laughs> I still laugh about this. They're interviewing this guy who is a high official in the FLDS. He is a high official. And he makes this statement. He says, there's a quote, and it's not in any religious book, he says, but it's an important quote that I often think of. It goes something like this. When the righteous reign, the people rejoice. But when the wicked reign, the people mourn. Now, if you have had your Bible for more than 30 seconds, you know that is in your King James Bible. Nobody, nobody corrected this guy before they put this on TV. Here's the reality. He is a high up individual in the fundamental Latter-day Saints and he ain't never read a Bible. I would say this, if he had ever read a Bible, he probably wouldn't be high up in the fundamental Latter-day Saints. Say, so what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. Uh, all manner of false religions, heresies, and cults around this world. You know what they're built off of? An ignorance of the Word of God. I, this, I, and I've tried to take this as a strategy in pastoring. We could do an eight-day workshop to guard you against the JWs or the Mormons. I'm not saying there's not maybe some benefit in that. But I'll tell you this. Listen, when the U.S. Treasury trains men how to detect counterfeit money, they don't have them study the counterfeit. They have them study the real article. They know if you know the real thing, you'll be able to tell a phony from a mile's distance. And I'd say this, the greatest thing we can do to guard our hearts and our homes and our lives from, uh, from the false truth and from error, the greatest thing we can do is learn this Bible. He gave him the Word and he said, uh, this Word is for you to live, to read, to study, to obey, and to do in your life. It's not a theoretical religious tome. It's the bread of life. He says, don't ever forget these things 
that you've seen. But then he sort of switches gears. He says, remember all the things that you've seen. And they say, okay, Moses, we've got it. We remember everything we saw. We've got it nailed down. He says, now, boys, don't forget what you didn't see. Well, what does that mean? I, how can I not forget the things that I've not seen? We're about to have a Dr. Seuss moment here. How's that even possible? But notice how he says it in verse number 15. He says, take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. Here's what you didn't see. He said, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Can I tell you that just as dangerous as what is missing from most churches is what has been put in to most churches. Most churches are defined not just by what's not there, but by the things that have crept their way in to the body of the people of God. And here's what Moses says. He said, don't forget there's some things that better be in the presence of the people. But then there's some things that you have no right, no reason to believe have any place amongst the people of God. What does he want them to, to remember that they had not seen? Well, look at verse number 16. He says, I don't want you making any graven images, any similitudes. Here's why. He said, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image. The similitude of any figure. The likeness of male or female. The likeness of any beast that is on the earth. The likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air. The likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground. The likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. Isn't it interesting the way he catalogs all those things? Wouldn't it have been enough to say, don't make any graven images? But he goes through and he catalogs it. Why does he do that? He wants to remind them that anything that they were to make a graven image of concerning God would always be a lesser representation than of who God truly is Himself. The problem with the graven image is this. We ain't never seen an image upon which to make the graven image. And so you know what we'll do? We'll take and mold and shape it in our own image. Notice the first thing that he mentions there. He says, don't make any graven images, you know, like male or female. You know why? Because here's what mankind does. We refashion God in our own visage. We say, well, God must be like me. He must love the things that I love. He must hate the things that I hate. He must love everything about me that I love about me. And He must hate everything about me that I desire to change. Can I tell you that God's perspective is holy and apart and separate from your opinion about things? He wants them to be reminded that they saw no corruption in God's person on the day that they saw Him or the day they heard from Him on Sinai. He knows that if they are given an opportunity to crave an image of God, they are only going to make Him a lesser God than He truly is. They will forget God's uniqueness in trying to duplicate His image. And this is the inherent problem with trying to remake God in any image. God's perfect as He is. Anything you do is going to make Him lesser in your esteem and in your appraisal. He says, don't forget on that day, the God that dealt with you was a perfect God, was a righteous God, was a holy God. Anything that you embrace that is lesser than that is a false God. Hey, Christianity today has a real problem with denigrating the character of God. Everything in modern Christianity is geared towards the idea of trying to make God more approachable. Can I tell you something? Jesus done done it first. He's the one that made Him approachable. But He did not do that through denigrating His holiness and character. He did it through dying in our place on the cross of Calvary. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but 
by me. He also said, Any that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's already made the way. Through Him we have both access and faith through the blood of Him. I'm saying this. It is through Jesus Christ that we approach unto Him. And through Jesus Christ, He is made approachable in the appropriate, proper way. But this whole spirit and fad in modern Christianity of trying to make Jesus as human or as uh, as much like us as possible to make Him somehow more appealing to the lost sinner, that's straight out of the pit of hell. He is not like us. He is separate from sin. And as such, we need to be reminded that anything that we try to do to try to craft Him in our image, we are always going to be not only corrupting our perspective of Him, but corrupting ourselves in the process. He reminds them that they saw no corruption in God's person. Then look down at verse number 19. He says, Unless thou lift up thine eyes unto the heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the hosts of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance as ye are this day. That's interesting language. He says there's a real danger. If you you open the door to following and worshiping uh, graven images, if you allow idolatry in your life, the danger is not just that you're going to make a graven image and misinterpret and misunderstand who God is, but then as you have introduced yourself to that system, you are now going to look to the heavens and see something far more glorious than you could ever fashion. And when you see it, you're going to be driven to worship that instead of the things that your hands have fashioned. In other words, he's saying this, you're going to look up and see something so much greater than what you can do, and you're going to think, I'm going to worship that instead of worshiping the one that did the thing that's so much greater than what you could ever do. In other words, he says this, don't forget on that day you saw no corruption in God's person, but number two, you saw no comparison to God's power. When you look up at the sun, the magnitude, the power of it, when you look up at the heavenly stars and are awestruck by the expanse and and by the scope of what God has created, don't ever forget that it's God that put them there. Don't ever forget that there's no one whose power can compare to God. Why do men worship the heavenly bodies? They worship them out of awe. They worship them because since the beginning of creation, man has been amused and, 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 and spellbound by their vastness and expanse and beauty. Now, the Bible does not condemn that, by the way, that, that, we are, uh, that we are infatuated with them. The Bible says that the heavens declare the handiwork of God. But when we then try to erase God's signature from the handiwork, all we can do is stand back and worship the handiwork. By the way, that's what's happened with the modern cult of science in our day that we live in. They have divorced God from the whole process and they're still awestruck by the beauty of creation, but they have gutted it of any divine creator. And so now what do they do? They worship the creature instead of the creator. He said, don't ever forget that at the end of the day, hey, there's no comparison to his power. Don't forget that there's no God like him. And here's why. Uh, Not just because of how he has miraculously worked in the world, but because of how he has personally worked in your life. He said, the Lord, verse 20, hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance as you are this day. He says, don't forget who saved you. Don't forget who delivered you. So he says, don't forget that you saw no corruption in God's person. You saw no comparison to God's power. But then verse 21, he says this, furthermore, The Lord was angry with me for your sakes. 
and swear that I should not go over Jordan and that I should not go in unto that good land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not go over Jordan. But ye shall go over and possess that good land. Can I tell you, I love scriptures that stick out like a sore thumb. You ever read something in the Bible and think, well, what's that doing there? You ever had that? I've had those moments. I'm raising two boys and sometimes I walk through the house and I look down and see something odd, see something strange and think, well, what's that doing there? How did we get a dead frog in our living room? How did that? And then I remember, oh yeah, I got, I got kids. That's how. <laughs> and don't, don't, don't be upset. I mean, they're doing it because they love me. It's like a dog bringing you a dead bird. You know, they're, here, dad. <laughs> But sometimes you'll look at it and think, well, how did that? And sometimes when you read the scripture, you'll think to yourself, how did that get there? Why is that there? What an unusual thing to be there. And it's strange that as Moses is talking about all these things that have happened long ago at Sinai, 40 years ago at Sinai, then all of a sudden he starts talking about what happened in much more recent memory when he smote the rock and was forbidden from going into the promised land. What a strange thing to be there. Can I tell you why it is there? Because the overall theme of this chapter is the Word of God. And remember why it was that Moses is not permitted to go into the promised land. Uh, one day when the children of Israel come to a place, uh, there, uh, there is no water, there is no sustenance for them. God commands Moses to take his staff and to smite the rock that is there. When he smites the rock, water comes pouring forth for the children of Israel to drink. Well, that was pretty wonderful. If it was good one time, it was great the second time. They come to another uh, place where they come to that same place again in their journeys. They do not have any water to drink. And the people begin to murmur against Moses. They begin to complain against Moses. And Moses, not because God had commanded him to, not because he was instructed, but just out of sort of anger and frustration, he grabs that staff and he says, you want water to drink? And he smites the stone a second time. In doing so, this was an act of disobedience against the Lord. But more than that, it really, it really messed up a type that God was developing. God was putting in it, uh, in Scripture, developing this beautiful type, he would have commanded Moses to speak to the rock. And that's what he told Moses. He said, I didn't command you to hit the rock. I would have commanded you to speak to the rock, and the rock would have given forth water. You say, preacher, how's that a type? Well, can I remind you in the New Testament, the book of 1 Corinthians, we're told that that rock that followed him in the wilderness was Christ. How, how did water come forth the first time when the rock was smitten? But now how does a person get water? All they have to do is speak to that rock, and they can drink the water of life freely. But more than that, it was that Moses had disobeyed the Lord. He had taken upon himself to play the part of God, and he had he had wrangled and, and taken captive the precepts of God and bent them to his own whim in a, mit, uh, a fit of anger. And he says, don't ever forget what happened that day, that I'm going to have to die out here in this wilderness. I'm not going to go with you. And here's why, because I forgot God's commandment. I disobeyed His word. In other words, we could say it this way. He says, don't forget on that day, you saw no corruption in God's person. You saw no comparison to God's power. But don't forget, you also saw no compromise in God's precepts. You saw that God doesn't care who you are, even if you're Moses himself. If you disobey the law, there's punishment for it. We need to be reminded in our day that we never get to a place, we never build up enough good credit or good faith in obedience to God that God's Word does not apply to us any longer. I was talking a moment ago about cults, uh, a moment ago about these cults. And that's invariably how all of these cults implode upon themselves. Pretty soon the people lose confidence because the leaders in the cult cease to obey the very tenets and precepts that they have taught 
their cult followers. And then the whole illusion falls. The, the curtain in front of the wizard just drops to the ground and it all comes crashing down. Listen, God's people are not to be that way. We're not a cult. We're uh, the people of God. We are not a cult. We're not following the writings of some man. We're following the very truth, the Word of God. And hey, listen, I don't care who you are. This, If you're saved, this is your Bible and you are expected to obey it. So he reminds them. He says, don't ever forget. Remember what you've not seen. But then look down in verse 23. I'll say a word about this and be done. He says, take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you, and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. So he says, don't forget that you've seen some things, and they need to be ingrained upon your mind. Don't forget that there's some things you've never seen, and you don't need to introduce them to your belief system just because you have a desire, just because pressures are placed upon you to do so. But he says, don't forget at the end of the day, on that day you entered into a special relationship with God. And that relationship is the defining thing in your life. He says, remember this covenant that you've, that you've made. Remember you've sealed this covenant with God. And then he goes on to describe three things about it they need to remember. The first is the partner in this covenant. Look at verse 24. He says, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. He says, don't forget that you went into business, that you entered a contract, that you sealed a covenant with a serious God on that day. He is a God that does not take lightly the commitments that He's made, nor the commitments that you have made. Hey, listen, what? Know ye not? This is the New Testament principle, right? What? Know ye not that ye are not your own? Ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. We don't belong to us. And God takes seriously how we live our lives. By the way, this should not motivate us to resentment nor should it motivate us to a petty and immature uh, spite towards God. This same verse is quoted in Hebrews chapter number 12, where it says this in verse 28, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably, uh, acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. He's saying, I've not done this so that you can recoil from God. I've said this so you'll reverence God. We need to be reminded He is a holy God. That's worthy of our obedience. Then he goes on to describe what would happen if they did not obey. Look at verse 25. He says, When thou shalt beget children and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but ye shall be utterly destroyed. He says, I want you to remember the partner in this covenant. But he says, secondly, I want you to remember the punishment in this covenant. Remember that actions have consequences. And if you choose to live in disobedience to God, God is not out of line. He is not unjust. He is not unfair for carrying out the consequences of our disobedience to Him. Now, I know somebody's sitting there thinking right now, oh, but grace, preacher, but grace, preacher. Hey, but can I remind you in the New Testament, it's true, we have been smothered and covered over by His love and His grace. You know what that's done for us? It's made us part of the family. And every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. He scourgeth every one of His own. So God has not uh, absolved Himself 
of responsibility to us. If anything, He has deepened that commitment to us. And now, rather than merely as a disobedient subject, now He deals with us as though we are a disobedient son because that's what we are. I'll tell you this, I'm a lot more apt to discipline my children than I am some stranger walking down the street. And in your life and mine, we need to be reminded we've entered into this relationship with God. But I'm thankful, man. He he doesn't end on a low note. He must have done that for preachers. I don't know. Verse number 29 says this, But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find Him. If thou seek Him with all thy heart and with all thy soul, when thou art in tribulation and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shalt be obedient to His voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which He swear unto them. What a precious way to end what is otherwise a fairly severe passage. He says, don't forget, and don't forget that I don't forget. He says, remember when that day comes that though there are punishments for disobeying the Lord, I am at my very core a merciful God. I desire to pour mercy upon you. My mercies are new every morning. He says, don't forget when you mess up, not if you mess up, when you mess up. Don't forget that you've got a loving God that desires to take you back into fellowship if you'll just come to me. Man, hey, listen, we ought to take God seriously. But that includes His promise of grace and pardon. We ought to take seriously His warnings against the perils and dangers of sin, against the devastating consequences of disobedience. But you say, preacher, what if I've messed up and here I am, my life is a mess. God's dealing with me. The Holy Ghost smoked me over. What do I do? Run to Him. Because the same God that promised you He'd chasten you also promised that He would pardon you. If you'll come to Him, He'll set everything right. Let's never forget these things. If we're not careful, man, your memories like mine will forget these things. Remember these things in our life. Teach them to our kids. Teach them to our grandkids. Teach them to the church kids. We ought to be teaching these things, remembering these things, holding them dear in our hearts and in our minds. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to the piano to play. The altar is open. Heavenly Father, I pray that You deal in this invitation. Lord, I pray that you'd have your will. I pray you'd have your way. I pray that your people would respond obediently unto you. Father, we love you. And we ask it in Christ's name. With